Well, the dirt that clung to the ridges of her sweaty feet gave a clear window into the smudges of the regret and guilt that clung to her heart. Her thoughts were spinning out of control with the inquiry, how did I end up here? She stood on a rough block of wood elevated a few feet above the ground, purpose for displaying the goods that were for sale, and tears streaked down her face collecting dirt as they fell. The choices in her life flickered in her mind like a doomed 8mm movie. You see, Gomer knew that she was loved once. She was deeply loved. Hosea had chosen her to be his bride, his wife, his partner for life. She was valued. She was respected. She was adored by her husband, Hosea. But deep down inside her life was housed a powerful lie. She was convinced that she was living a lie. How could he love me, she thought. Does he even really know who I really am? She was convinced she didn't deserve his love, and so she moved to strike first, to reject him before he rejected her. So she followed her stupid, restless heart into the arms of another man, and then another, and then another, and then another. And eventually she ran out of both money and men and became a slave due to the money that she owed. And now she was being sold to the highest bidder. And at that moment, suddenly a voice crackled through the humid air and brought shockwaves to her heart. I'll buy her. It was a familiar voice, but could it be? Could it really be her, her husband, Hosea? I'll take her for 15 pieces of barley, 15 pieces of silver, and some barley. Sold. As he approached, she could make out his silhouette clearly, the way he tilted his head slightly to the right with curious determination, his broad shoulders and his curly, thick hair, and she gasped with long-forgotten hope. Could it really be Hosea? She dropped her eyes, avoiding the judgment that she thought she would surely endure from him, and trembling, she fell to the ground. The warmth of Hosea's touch jolted her and jolted life into her bones. She lifted, he lifted her chin and tenderly brushed the hair out of her eyes. Then he scooped her up and he carried her away from her dirty life. Gomer began to sob. This man... This man whom she had willfully rejected and intentionally hurt. This man whom she had humiliated. This man gave all he had and bent down into the dirt and lifted her up. She tried to resist him, whimpering faintly, don't mess with me, I'm not worth it. Find someone else who's going to be worthy of your love. But Hosea brushed the edge of her ear, whispering a declaration that changed her life forever. He said, I love you. I want you. I am buying you back to restore you to who you really are, a loved and valuable person. My wife, 
Now let's go home. This is the story of Hosea and Gomer in the Old Testament book of Hosea, chapters 1 and 3, and that's as it's written by a blogger by the name of Amy Ruth. And the book of Hosea that we're going to be diving into uh, this January and February around Jericho Ridge is a beautiful love story. It's a story that paints vividly and painfully a picture of God's love for people, for broken people, sinful people. And it reminds us of the reality that though we may reject him again and again, Jesus gives everything and gave everything he had to buy us back in order to restore us to a place of honor and value and relationship with him. The story of Hosea is a messy and complicated story. And if you let it, it will change your perception of how God thinks and feels about each one of us. So we're into the Old Testament book of Hosea. It's in the Minor Prophets. It starts the Minor Prophets just after the book of Daniel. And in Hosea, there's two primary images. It's a very image-rich book. As we go through the 14 chapters, you're going to see illustration after picture after picture after picture of how God feels about you and how God feels about us. But the two primary pictures that come to us early in the book help us understand the depth and the intensity of God's love for us. And these are deeply emotional and rich pictures that get acted out in the life of Hosea as a way of helping us understand and get a window into how God feels about his relationship with humanity, particularly how God feels when we disappoint and forsake him which, if we're honest with ourselves, all of us do and all of us have done and will continue to do. So these pictures that come to us in Hosea, the first picture is that of a husband with an unfaithful wife. And this image is really at the heart of Hosea's love story. Last weekend, Pastor Keith reminded us of the shocking reality of the way that the book of Hosea starts. It starts very abruptly in Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, where it says, When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman. So Hosea married Gomer. Now, we can spend a lot of time trying to wrestle with what it was that God was asking Hosea to do, and try to figure out, you know, what, stat, what state was Gomer in when Hosea married her? Was she unfaithful before that? Did she choose to be unfaithful after that? I think the latter is more probable because that clearly illustrates what God is trying to communicate about his relationship with his people, that they were once faithful to him and they have become unfaithful to him. But regardless, the text doesn't give us a lot of solid answers on that. And because that's not really the focus of what the text is designing us to really pay attention to in Hosea chapter 1 and chapter 3. What the text wants us to focus on, what Hosea wants to bring our attention to, is the breakdown in that relationship. And the breakdown in that relationship is as a result of the direct choices that Gomer makes in that relationship. So picture it. Hosea and Gomer are married. They are newly married. They're expecting their first child together. They're starting out their lives together. And at some point in this early juncture, in the relationship, 
Gomer gives herself over to harlotry. She runs into the arms of another man, and then another, and then another. And so there's three children born in Hosea chapter 1. Only the first one belongs to Hosea. The other two likely do not. We'll come to the kids in a few minutes, minutes, but I want us to wrestle with the agony that Gomer's choices would have caused Hosea as a person, as a husband. Some of you, I know a little bit about your story, and some of you have lived through this kind of very heart and deep relational betrayal. And some of you know all too deep all too well how deeply it wounds. And so Hosea is left in his life, in his experiences early in his life, to eke out a living as a single dad for a season. He's left to raise three kids, only one of which is his. He's left with this incredible social stigma that would have surrounded that in the ancient world. But despite all of this, it seems that he loves Gomer deeply. He persists in loving her, even after she wounds and forsakes him. Because in the midst of all of this grief and heartache and pain, God tells Hosea to do something radical, and he obeys. God says in chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord said to me, talking to Hosea, the writer, go and love your wife again, even though she commits harlotry with another. And this will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods. They have turned and love to worship them. Verse 2 continues, I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver, five bushels of barley, and a measure of wine. See, in Hosea, we get this picture of a person whose love cannot be quenched even by betrayal. Here's a man who's had to look his children in the eye and say, mommy's not coming back. And then later on in the journey, he's got to go out and expend great personal costs to buy mommy back from the place in which she has found herself. And this adds up to the the barley and the wine and the 15 pieces of silver. It adds up to about 30 pieces of silver. And that's the price of a common slave in the ancient world. That's all Gomer's life has been worth to her at that moment. But you see, her life has been worth something much more than that to her husband. Hosea's love could not be undone or erased by Gomer's choices. And we come to understand very early in the book of Hosea that the intention behind this book is to help give us a window into how God feels about people when we do the same things to him. And so the point that Hosea is making in this drama, in his life, in the way that he lives, is this, that God's love for you and me is not quenched even when we betray his love and his faithfulness to us. God's love for you, God's love for me is not quenched, it's not overridden, when you and I make choices that betray the love and faithfulness that he has displayed to us. You see, God's love is remarkable. It's forgiving. It's a nurturing. It's a healing, divine kind of love. God's love for you and for me, as Abraham Heschel says it in his book, The Prophets, is ineradicable. 
It cannot be eradicated. There's so many scriptures that talk to us about the way in which God loves us. Psalm 86 verse 15 says it this way, But you, O Lord, you are a God of compassion and mercy. You are slow to get anger, and you are filled to the very overflow, to the very core of your being. In every way, you are filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. There's a song that we sing every now and then at Jericho Ridge, and I love the way that it paints a word picture for us. It talks about draining the ocean dry. If every person were a scribe by trade, if everyone was responsible to just write about God's love, and every stock in the whole world was a pen, and the whole ocean was ink, and we were to write and write and write and write, we still wouldn't exhaust the end of God's love and faithfulness. The love of God, how rich, how pure, how measureless, how strong it shall forevermore endure. It's out of this understanding of God's love that Hosea writes, but it's out of a very personal understanding of this love that Hosea writes because it's out of his anguish and out of his place of pain and his horrific personal experiences that Hosea rises to a more messy understanding of God's love and a deeper understanding of the depth of God's love and the remarkable nature of God's love for people. And that's just one of the pictures that Hosea is going to use to try and communicate this to us in this book. The second image that I want us to look at today is an image of a parent, and a parent and a rebellious child or rebellious children. In chapter 1, Gomer has three kids, only one of which is Hosea's, but she pawns all three of them off on Hosea. And God tells Hosea to give these three kids some of the weirdest names you have ever heard of in your life. These are names infused with deep prophetic significance and meaning. Because you remember, in the biblical world, names meant something. Names had Uh, a lot more currency than they do in our day and time. Remember at Christmas, we were talking about the story of John the Baptist's birth, and we talked about Zechariah, his father, and everybody expected, oh, Zechariah will name his son Zechariah after him. That's just the way we do it. And he wrote and he said, no, his name will be John, and people freaked out. You don't just choose a name for your kid. That's not how it's done in the ancient world. Or think about Jesus and his disciples. He had two of them named, uh, nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. One was named Simon. And Simon goes through this experience that Sons of Thunder probably came from their tempers. This is, and Jesus says, no, 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 I'm going to rename you. Your name is going to have something of significance. Well, I'm going to call you Peter. Peter means rock. And upon this rock, upon your confession, I will build my church. And so names mean something in the biblical world. As far as biblical names go, though, even the names in Hosea sound freaky weird. I mean, I know that there are people, you probably have friends who you think they are naming their kids some pretty crazy things these days. I think these ones still take the cake. They're just a little bit on the deep end. 
But each of them actually has a very significant meaning that God actually gives to Hosea. Hosea doesn't choose these names. God says, I want you to name your kid this. So let's look at each of them. Boy number one, chapter one, verse three and following. God says, call him Jezreel. The name means God plants or God scatters, like they would plant in the ancient world, right? You're scattering seed. So God scatters is what Jezreel means. And it's actually the name of a place. You see, back at the start of the northern kingdom, Hosea is one of the only two prophets that actually speaks to this group of people in the whole of the Old Testament. And back at the start of this division in Israel, when the north and the south were split, a man named Jehu became king by treachery and violence. He established the nation by violence and bloodshed. He... he, Uh, received a task, and he went hard after it. He was supposed to get rid of Ahab and Jezebel, who were some of the most wicked kings and queens in the Old Testament. And he went over the top, and he slaughtered them. He killed Ahab, he killed Jezebel, he killed Ahab's 80 sons, and he did it with horrific violence. And the place that he did it was known as the Jezreel Valley. And so the very name Jezreel was associated with his listeners in Hosea's day with incredible and horrific murderous violence and evil. In our day and time, it might be like naming your kid Auschwitz or Hiroshima. You just don't go there. You don't name your kids those things because it conjures up a cultural memory. Yet this kid's name Jezreel God is saying something very specific to the nation of Israel. He's reminding them not only of their history, but when he's saying God scatters, he's saying, watch out. Payday for building your life, for building your nation upon a foundation of violence is coming. Your consequences for these actions is on its way. I will scatter you. And sure enough, in less than 25 years from when Hosea names his child, God puts an end to Israel's independence when Assyria conquered the land. And you only get one guess as to the name of the military overthrow, the place where the military overthrow happened. Jezreel. It was in the Jezreel Valley that Assyria conquered Israel in one of the bloodiest battles on record in the ancient Near East. And with this son's name, it was as if God was firing a warning shot across the bow of the nation and saying to them, I will scatter you to the far corners of the earth. If you don't change your ways, payday is coming. As a people who have built your life on a foundation of rebellion and violence, you cannot get away with this forever. There are consequences for your actions. You hear the parenting metaphor coming through loud and clear? Well, why would God do this? Why would he have Hosea choose such an assertive name and gloomy name like Jezreel for his eldest son? Well, I think it forms for us a more complete picture of understanding of God's love. Because sometimes, I think what happens to us is we hear about God's love and how rich and how deep and how pure and how unfathomable it is and how no matter what we do, God will still love us. And so we can be tempted to take advantage of that reality. Subtly or unsubtly, we tell ourselves, oh, it's easier to ask God for forgiveness than for permission. And we think, oh, God loves me so much, I can actually do whatever I want, say whatever I want, live however I want, and then I'll just come to God and say, God, I'm so sorry for all of those things. And everything will be okay. 
But Jezreel reminds us of the accountability for our actions that each of us have before a holy God. It's like Jezreel, the name means payday is coming. Do not abuse my grace, says God. In Romans chapter 6, wrestling with this in the New Testament, it's addressed head on. Romans 6, 1 and 2 says it this way. Well, should we just keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more and more of his wonderful grace? No, of course not. Since we've died to sin, how can we continue living in it? If you understand what it means to receive God's incredible love, you can't abuse that grace. Even when Hosea brings Gomer back into his life, in chapter 3, verse 3, he says, you need to stop your actions and we need to be apart from a time. I love you, but there are consequences to your actions. You see, some of you today need to come to the place where you make a commitment to stop taking advantage of God's grace. Even with God's incredible love and his grace, there are consequences for your actions and mine. Payday is coming. Don't live under an illusion that you and I are not going to collect and be fully paid the wages that we have earned for the sin that we have committed. This is the message that God is trying to communicate to his people with the name Jezreel. God scatters. Payday is coming. And this is also the message that God's trying to communicate to his people with Gomer's second child, a daughter. Her name is Lo Ruhamah. Ruhamah in Hebrew means loved, and Lo is the negation, so it means not loved. Tough to go through your whole life with a name like that, wouldn't it be? Hey, not loved, come on over here. Who's going to be on the team? I'll let's choose not loved. But listen carefully in Hosea chapter 1, verse 6. The way that God describes the understanding that he has, he says, I will no longer show love or show my love to the people of Israel or forgive them. He doesn't say, I'm not going to love them anymore. I will no longer show them my love. They will not be able to experience my love because of their choices. And here's the point that I think... God is trying to make with this. That God's love is unconditional, but I can choose to do things, you can choose to do things that actually remove you from an experience of God's love. God still loves me, but my actions can remove me from experiencing God's love. Think of it this way. If you have a son or a daughter and they run away from home, As a parent, you don't stop loving them, but as a result of their actions and their choices, they're not able to actively experience whatever love you have for them in the same way that they could if they were at home. And so this is the point of the second child's name. God's love may be ineradicable, but my experience of God's love depends on my obedience. See, some of you are here today, and you're in a place where your choices have actively, and your actions have removed you from a place that you could actively experience God's love. You've made choices. 
You've said some things. You've done some things. You've left things undone that have caused hurt to God and to people around you. And sometimes you wonder why you don't experience God's love the way that you used to. The scripture reminds us, though, that no matter how far you have wandered, the road back to God is always the same. It's a path of repentance. Three simple words mark the entrance to that path. God, I'm sorry. See, some of you are playing the part of the prodigal son or the prodigal daughter, and you're doing a pretty good job of it. You're calloused. Your heart has become hard by life and by your choices, but today might actually be your day for an about face. Today might be your day for repentance and to begin yet again to invite yourself into an experience of God's love. For some of you, that might be a first-time decision. You may have never actually said those three words to God, God, I'm sorry. If that's you today, I want you to come and pray with me at the end of our gathering this morning. I want to explore that with you. Today might be the day of salvation for you. For others of you, this might be the umpteenth thousandth time that you feel like you've said those three words to God. You've come to God, said, God, I'm sorry, I messed up again. And it's into that place of repentance, into that place of brokenness that God breeds hope. Listen to God's response in chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. Yes, there's consequences, God says. The people of Israel are going to live a long time stripped of security and protection, without religion, without comfort, godless and prayerless. But in time, they will come back, these Israelites. They will come back looking for their God and their king, they will come back chastened to reverence before God and his good gifts. And they'll be ready for the end of the story of his love. Maybe that's you here today. In a few minutes, we're going to respond in prayer. And maybe you need to say, you know what, God, I am sorry. Don't let that opportunity pass you by. If you want to come and pray with our prayer team, we'd be happy to walk in that journey of repentance with you. The book of James says, confess your sins one to another and be healed. It's a gutsy move. Maybe you want to come and say, I need support in this journey, whether it's a first time or whether you just need to wipe the slate clean and say, I need you to pray for me about this in my life. I need you to pray for strength for me to be healed. I want you to examine your heart today and ask God, point out any choices that you have made in your life, any choices I have made in my life that have removed us from the full experience of God's love and his mercy. And that brings us to the last kid of the day. The first kid, Jezreel, means payday is coming. The second kid, Lo Ruhama, means not loved. And the third, a son, although you never know it from the name, would be Lo Ami, which means not my people. Ami means my people. God says to the people in Hosea chapter 1, verse 9, Israel is not my people, and I am not their God. The relationship has broken down to the place where we don't even know each other anymore. I am not, literally God saying, remember in, in the beginning of the Old Testament, God came to people and revealed himself and said, I am. That's the name that I want you to call me. And here God says, I am not I am to you anymore. That's how deep this relationship has broken off. Here again, we see the consequences of choices made, but you also see that glimmer of hope again. 
that God, the notion of God as a patient father standing by and waiting and saying to a child, please, I plead with you, make a different choice. This is the wrestling match that actually continues through the whole book of Hosea. God clearly outlines the consequences, moral, natural, divine. People make choices and they live with the choices of those consequences. They experience the choices of those consequences. Some of them are brutal and horrific. And yet God doesn't just walk off and say, well, I told you so. I warned you and you kept going with that. So we're done here. God says, right now, you are not acting in a way that I can legitimately call you my people, so we need to speak the truth and call it like it is. Lo, me. But, look at the next verse in Hosea chapter 1. In the middle of this mess, there's a message of hope, which gives us incredible insight, I think, into God's heart of love. God says in Hosea chapter 1, the time will come when Israel's People will be like the sands of the seashore, too many to count. And then at the very place that they were told, you are not my people, it will be said of them, you are children of the living God. The people of Judah and Israel will unite together and they will choose one leader for themselves. They will return from exile together. What a day that will be. Guess where that's going to happen? Right in the valley of Jezreel. The day of Jezreel. The day of planting where God will again plant his people in the land. And in this day, you will look around and you will call your brothers, Amy, my people. And you will call your sisters, Ruhamah, the ones that I love. This is a promise of divine restoration, of divine reversal. And I love the specificity of God's actions. God says, I am going to get involved right at that place of hurt and division, and brokenness. Right at the place where it was proclaimed, you are not my people, yeah, that's where I'm going to stand and say, you're mine. I'm going to reclaim right at that place of deepest loss and darkness, I'm going to stand and declare hope. Right at the day when you think that all hope is gone, I'm going to, it will be a day of repentance and return where you move from being not mine and nobody to being known again as precious and loved of me as your father. See, this is the message some of you need to hear this morning because some of you have told yourselves a lie. You have believed for a very long time that as a wayward son or as a wayward daughter, God could never love you because of what you've done or how far you've strayed or how many times you've slipped up in that same cycle over and over and over again that you've repeated despite the fact that you promised God you would never do it again. You told God and others, no, Jesus could never love me because you feel like you're stuck in a cycle of sin. January 1st came around and you thought to yourself, yes, a new year. It's going to be different this year. And here we are 12 days into the year and you've already slipped back into that old habit, that old hurt, that old hang-up in some significant way, back into a pattern of anger and rage. You've slipped back into patterns of deceit. You've allowed yourself to be overcome by jealousy as other people describe their wonderful Christmas experiences that you didn't have. You promised to hold back, but you're back into a cycle of gluttony, be it physical or financial. Your mind, your actions are promiscuous even though you promised to find an accountability partner and that you would never do that again. So because of this, you've told yourself, you know what, there's no hope for me. I'm done. If God 
God knows that. And if people around here knew about me, if they knew how often I got tripped up into that, they wouldn't love me either. I'm pretty sure God doesn't love me anymore. They wouldn't care about me. They wouldn't want to have me around. But here again, the amazingly interconnected truths about God's love come through to us again that we learn about through the names and experiences of Hosea's three children. Remember, we learn that God's love for us is unconditional. It's ineradicable. It cannot be overcome by your choices. But... At the same time, you can choose to remove yourself by your choices from the experience of God's love. But I think the most powerful part of that is that God himself sometimes gets involved with the sin that he hates in order to clean up those whom he loves. Just like Hosea, who walked into the slave market and that world of harlotry in order to rescue his beloved from the choices that she had made. God walks into your life and is walking into your life today. He's willing and able to meet you right at that place of sin and rebellion and brokenness with his amazing and ineradicable love. Let's pray together as we respond to God in song this morning.